In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you that are members of this parish have a rather unique talent, or may say a unique interest, and it's tied to gardening. I don't necessarily mean vegetable and herb gardening, but I mean the type of gardening that sees as its purpose creating beautiful landscapes, interesting beds and arrangements of flowers and shrubs and, well, really, who knows what else. Those who are master gardeners knows what plants are desirable, which plants grow in this climate zone and soil rather than a different one, and how to pair each plant in such a way that they are mutually beneficial to the whole. I am not one of those people. I love good gardens. I love looking at beautiful flowers. I enjoy watching the vision of someone who loves this type of work come together and the gardener begin to beam and grin as, I don't know, some hibiscus they had been twisting together for five years is perfect or the rose bush that they had been pruning caringly and gently for months now is giving off more buds and flowers. I do not know one type of flower from another, but I can look and marvel at how things so simple and yet so beautiful can stir the heart and the soul. In this epic chapter, what we know is Romans 8, continuing on from last week, St. Paul is describing not only the role that Torah, the law of Moses, played in our salvation history, but then describes how the Spirit of God comes in and among the children of God, the heirs of creation and glory, to participate in the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. Part of what St. Paul highlights in this section of this epistle today is not only are we, the flesh and blood humanity created in the Imago Dei, going to be restored and renewed, but all of creation itself is waiting, almost as if on tiptoe, for the unveiling of the new creation. Let's take a rather intense look at that this morning. To begin, we must go all the way back to the beginning of creation in Genesis. We all remember and know the story of Genesis 1, how God created the heavens and the earth and all that we know in this universe, both things seen and unseen. On the sixth day of creation, God created us, humankind, in his image to, and told us to fill the earth to subdue it, to dominate it, to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and all living creatures that walk upon the earth. We are given the roles of stewards of creation. In Genesis 2, we have not only the story of man naming the animals, but we have the Lord God giving Adam a job, the caretaking, the tilling of the Garden of Eden, and it's a specific task. It's a role that all humanity is to share in, even to this day. But we all know the story. Something went terribly wrong. 
Genesis 3 recounts the story of man rebelling against God. The appetite of humankind was not sated by the fruits and the vegetables that God had given us to eat. Instead, we turned our eyes to fruits and to trees from which we were commanded not to eat. And when we did, when we ate of the fruit that was forbidden, when we rebelled against God, all creation suffered. That is something we have to remember about all sin. All sin are rebellions. Even small, seemingly inconsequential sins are rebellions. And all sins, even what we might consider private sins, have devastating effects on ourselves, on our neighbors, on all of creation. We sometimes hear people say things like, well, it really doesn't matter what I do because I'm not hurting anybody else, right? Well, the entire history of sin is predicated on the actions we take having direct consequences on everyone around us. Much like the theory of the butterfly effect, where the beating of a butterfly's wings in Africa can be the beginning of a hurricane that wreaks havoc on our own shores. Sin does have that rippling effect, even though it may not be apparent at first or even second glance. Let me give you two examples to help illustrate what I'm talking about. Globally, we do indeed produce enough food to feed everyone in the world. There is absolutely no reason that anyone should go hungry. In reality, we overproduce food. In the United States and in other Western countries, there is much food that is thrown out. However, there is also much fear in these Western countries, the United States included, that we will run out of food, even though it is rather unlikely. But if you consider the African continent, there are places where people are starving because the regions they live in cannot produce enough food to sustain the population, either because of climate and famine or because the soil is unsuitable. Yet, and I'll point the finger at myself first, we Westerners tend to be rather gluttonous. I eat more than I should, and truth be told, I'm starting to show it. I sometimes buy too many apples or too many avocados or more milk than I really need, and some of it goes to waste. My freezer is full, yet sometimes I think I don't have enough to eat. And what do I do? I go out and buy more. But in reality, it's just good old-fashioned gluttony, living in fear of scarcity. Perhaps if I buy a little less over time, some of that extra food that I might waste can go to someone who truly needs it more than me. And honestly, I think the vast majority of Americans can say the same thing. Another example is what is done in the privacy of people's homes. 
oftentimes with a computer and images or videos that are watched. Let the hearer understand. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter because I'm not hurting anybody. Except, what happens when those videos are watched and those images are viewed? The person on the screen or in the picture no longer is a human being, but becomes an object. No longer are you marveling at another person because they too are made in the image of God, but they are exploited as an idol of desire, quite often a wrong desire. It leads to lust. And eventually, the people who we do meet face to face in real life become more like objects and commodities we can use and abuse rather than fellow created beings. Today, this type of exploitation has led to many of our young people being placed in danger and having horrendous things occur to them once again. Let the reader, or sorry, let the hearer understand of that which I speak. And all of that is just to satisfy unhealthy cravings, or if you will allow me to be blunt, unbridled sin that knows no bounds. We who are baptized and washed in the blood of the Lamb, we who claim that Jesus is our Lord, our King, and our master, we who say to our friends and neighbors, Jesus has made all the difference to me, are called to forsake all sin, to forsake and to give up all things that are not of God. As St. Paul says, we need to put away all things that lead to death. And creation itself stands as a witness to our fallen nature, crying and groaning out, waiting with bated breath for the coming of Jesus again. Why? Well, first, because when he comes, all things will be put back to rights. And second, as St. Paul reminds us, for us Christians, we will finally have revealed in us and to us the glory that we share in Christ. Creation itself, the trees and the oceans, even the stars and the moons, are longing for the new creation, which has already been inaugurated on Easter Day, waiting for it to come to its final full flowering, with us, mankind made in the image of God, sharing in the glory of the Messiah, sharing in the glory of Christ Jesus. When we think about sin as the impediment to all of that, it puts both the smallest snide remark and the worst atrocity as roadblocks to the will of God. When we view sin as a rebellion against not only God, but against the very purposes for which we are created, which is to be stewards of this world and all the life that is contained in her, we see why St. Paul talks about the earth groaning, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. And we, too, groan as well. How often do we read the news and ask, How long, O Lord, 
When we consider events like the war in Ukraine, the riots in France, the uptick in homelessness in the United States, the corruption that is infecting our political and business worlds, how often do we see things that occur before our eyes, like a car accident that kills an innocent victim, or a sick one, a loved one who is sick and dying, or a wildfire like the ones devastating many parts of the globe, and we cry inwardly, how long, O oh Lord? And this is where we do trust in hope. Sometimes I think we misunderstand what hope really is. Hope is not waiting for something we have a great degree of certainty in. We don't say, or if we do, it's just a bad habit because it's not really true. But what we don't say is, well, I hope the sun rises this morning, or I hope the ocean is still around when I go to the beach next week, because those things are rather certain. We can hope in them. What is it that poem said? I believe in the sun even when it isn't shining. Hope, rather, is waiting expectantly for what we know to be true and hasn't come about yet. Much like our master gardeners who plant seeds and care for roses, they hope that their plants grow, that the flowers bloom, and that the garden produces. As Paul says, we hope for things unseen. I hope it rains soon. I hope our festival next week is successful. I hope to live to a ripe old age. But our Christian hope is something a little different. Christian hope is waiting for those things that we have put our faith into, not growing weary or discouraged, but waiting for God's justice to be revealed in the world. It is an active waiting, because the waiting is with purpose attached. We are commanded to not sit on our hands, passively watching the world destroy itself, but rather to wait actively, doing those things that Jesus did, making the world around us right here into the image of Eden again. Each of us becoming active gardeners who help relieve the groanings of creation by loving our neighbor, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick and dying, visiting those in prison, and a whole host of other things. Christian hope is knowing the promises we have been given, that God will restore all things, that God's justice will prevail, that God's love and God's mercy are the most assured things in all of creation, and that when we die, we will rest in the peace of Christ and rise again in our own bodies at the appointed hour. And this is what we are called to share in, the hope in God making all things right once again. We are not debtors to the flesh. If you live by the flesh, you will die. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed for us. For in hope we are saved. We hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.